Welcome to the Kinky Cast, a sexually explicit podcast for adults. You are listening to a weekly publication, produced every Friday morning. This is our weekly exploration in the kinky world of BDSM and alternative relationships. Today, we present episode 430. The Kinky Cast Time Machine goes back to August 2014 to visit the Leather Archives and Museum in Chicago. Don't forget to stop by our webpage for information about this show and others. KinkyCast.com. Here's your hosts, Woody and the Beast. Welcome to another edition of the Kinky Cast. This week, we're going on the road. Right, Beast? We're going on the road. We're headed to the Windy City of Chicago for the Leather Museum and Archives. And what promises to be a great interview with the executive director and the chief archivist. How on earth can you be here in the studio and in Chicago at the same time? It's magic, and we'll leave it to the listener's imagination. But it has something to do with the automobile and about eight hours on the road. And theater of the mind. And theater of the mind, yes. Okay. On that note, off to Chicago. Hello, listeners. We are here in Chicago, the Windy City, on possibly the best summer they've had in a few years. And I'm sitting with Jacob and Rick who are with the Leather Archives and Museum. Hello, gentlemen. Greetings. Hello. Hello. Rick, tell me about yourself. Sure. My name is Rick Storer. I'm the executive director of the Leather Archives and Museum. Um, I've been on staff here for about 12 years now and was a volunteer here for several years before that. Uh, I came to the Leather Archives uh, from accounting. I used to do like accounting work, um, which I really enjoyed. Uh, but in uh, 2001, former executive director Joseph Bean was getting ready to retire uh, and leave. And so uh, he talked to me about coming on board. And when I realized that I could have a job where I didn't have to wear khaki pants and polo shirts every day, and I could wear leather and fetish stuff to work, I was like, sure, I have no further questions. I'm in. You're in. Joseph Bean, that is the legendary Joseph Bean. The legendary Joseph W. Bean, yes. He helped get this project started, obviously, then. He did. He was the first executive director, and Joseph had an amazing network as an artist and an educator and a publisher and an editor. He had people that knew him of course, all over the United States, but all over the world as well. And so Joseph's primary job was getting the world convinced that this place in Chicago, Illinois, was the right place for all of our history and our culture and our artifacts and our memories to be stored. And he did that, and he did a really great job at it. Fantastic. And Jacob. Yes, hello. Who is Jacob? Uh, my name is Jacob Van Lameren, and I'm the archivist and collections librarian here at the Leather Archives and Museum. I started here as an intern um, when I was in graduate school for library and information science. How interesting. What a weird uh, path that many would think that was. Yeah, it was amazing. I, I mean, as a kinky person and as a leather person, I was so excited that they were offering internships at the Leather Archives and Museum. So when I first started here, um, I processed a small collection and then I transcribed a few oral histories as well. Um, 
and Rick asked me to join the LANM as a project archivist in October of 2012, um, where I worked on the Chicago Hellfire Club collection for about seven months. Um, and once that was completed, um, they offered me a full-time job as the archivist here. What a great way to use your degree. Yes. It's so rare that, that as kinky people that we can find a fit for our actual academic work. Such a perfect fit. It's wonderful. Absolutely. It's, um, it's, I always tell everyone, of course, it's the best job I've ever had. Um, I, I get to interact with sexuality collections that are unique and incredible and speak to our long and really complex and dynamic history. Great, great. Gentlemen, we're sitting in a building in the corner of Chicago in the University District. Tell us, how did we get here? How did we get to 6418 North Greenview Avenue yes. in Chicago, Illinois? Yes. Uh, that's a great question. The Leather Archives started as the corner of Chuck Renslow's basement. Uh, Chuck Renslow, legendary leatherman here in Chicago, founded International Mr. Leather, had a photography studio back in the 1950s, even before there was publishing outlets for erotic and kinky photographs. Uh, Chuck and some other people realized that there were stories and collections that were being thrown away. Uh, as people would pass away, especially in the 1980s with lots of gay men uh, dying from AIDS, uninformed family members would come in, find these collections of letters and magazines and artwork and photographs. They largely didn't know about their sons, what they were into or what they collected. And so they would just, they would be shocked by this stuff and they would just throw it away. Um, understandably, they were surprised, they were shocked, they were grieving. Um, and oftentimes this was happening as partners would have to look on and watch their former partner's life be tossed into a dumpster. And so Chuck and many other people said, this has to stop, something has to be done. And so in 1991, the Leather Archives and Museum was incorporated. Like I said, at the time, it was just a collection in the corner of Chuck's basement. So a bunch of boxes that he has salvaged in many cases from uh, from terrible situations that, that, that he was collecting. And this was before they were actually cataloged, right? Right. Well, I mean, most of the collections in Chuck's basement were his own and also his former lover, Damari Judos, um, who is well known as the artist Etienne. So a large Etienne artwork collection was also in Chuck's basement. And when he was trying to find a repository or an archive or a museum to donate to, um, people couldn't guarantee that A, it would be on display, or B, that it wouldn't be broken up and sold as individual pieces to other places. Part of what makes archival collections unique is maintaining the integrity of a collection. So by breaking up um, an artwork collection, for example, it means that you don't have the complete collection in one place, which, which can oftentimes take away certain parts of the history or certain parts of the provenance or the context of that collection. They were in the basement and they were looking for a home. Yes, and so they found a home uh, right next to a bathhouse here in Chicago called Man's Country. 
uh, it was just a little storefront. And so Chuck took the boxes that he had and put some of them in there. Uh, Tony DeBlas, who is the creator of the Leather Pride flag, also was involved in the project very early on, found a few of his own collections and put them in the storefront. Uh, and then they brought in Joseph Bean uh, to really get the word out. And within a matter of years, every almost everyone in the country knew about the Leather Archives and started sending more boxes. And then they sent some more boxes and more and more. And within a couple of years, this storefront was literally packed to the, the walls. They couldn't put any artwork up on the walls because there were no visible walls. There were boxes everywhere. And so in 1997, they initiated a capital campaign to find a permanent home for the Leather Archives. Uh, and so uh, in 2004, they paid off the entire mortgage. So in a matter of seven, six years, they initiated a capital campaign. The entire leather and fetish community got behind it and provided this permanent home with no mortgage, no rent that is owned and controlled by the leather community. And so nobody can come in and say, we're gonna evict you, we're gonna kick you out. This is our home, these are our walls, and this is our collection here. Wow, that is such a fantastic situation. Because so rare in our communities today do we have that luxury of freedom from eviction, freedom from uh, sudden rate hocks that are effectively in eviction. And I noticed the building is quite interesting. A theater out front for showing, I presume, documentaries and so forth. That was that was fantastic. And I haven't had a chance to tour the museum yet. I hope to before I get out of here today. So these boxes and boxes, they must have been a challenge to pull all this together into a into a working collection. Definitely, it was a challenge and required many, many, many volunteers. I wanna step back and give a All really right, brief please, history of this building because it is so interesting. It was built in the 1950s and founded as a synagogue. So this building was originally a synagogue and uh, shortly thereafter, or the, the congregation was here for a little while um, and then they left to move to a new location. It was then turned into a theater and performing arts center, and it sat empty after that theater company left. Um, it was used, rented out as like a Bible church for a little while, and now it is a kinky sex museum. And so I, I always tell people, if these walls could talk, the stories and the, the things that they've heard. Um, but yes, when we first moved into the building in 1999, uh, it was literally just taking everything from the storefront and moving it into a bigger building. And so while the building was fabulous uh, and wonderful, it was still just a big building with boxes all over the place. And so over 10 years, uh, the staff and a huge cadre of volunteers went through the boxes and got some basic inventory done. So we knew exactly what we had here. The collection continues to grow, I know. Jacob, what's your title again? Um, archivist and archivist. Collections Librarian. This must have been a very unique situation for you because uh, usually you'll go from school into working for somebody that has an established system and all that. And here you come in and you're creating it. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's also unique because this archives and library work is not necessarily my background. Um, I spent almost nine years doing direct service work with homeless and street-based youth. 
um, and I facilitated creative writing groups. So when I went back to get my second master's, it was a completely different um, set of tools that I was learning. Um, and coming in here and doing collections work and managing interns and um, processing archival collections and creating finding aids, doing outreach to educate and provide access to these collections um, was certainly unknown to me. And I think what is amazing is that, just like Rick said, this is an amazing community, supportive and sustained space. Um, I could have never come in here right after school um, into this position without the support that I've gotten from Rick and Jeff and also all of the volunteers. Um, so it's it's been a unique experience for me um, to be the archivist here, but we have some of the most incredible collections. Um, and I think that those collections keep me really grounded in that work. Give me an example of one of these great collections. I've seen some of them on the website, but I know that there must be many more that haven't made the jump to the, to the digital realm yet. That's correct. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about some of the collections that we're working on downstairs. Um, a, a very large collection that we're currently processing is the David Grieger collection. And David Grieger was an erotic artist in uh, the early 1990s from Houston, Texas. And some of his um, erotic drawings were published in the Manifest Reader, in Drummer, and then a few in Honcho as well. But he was relatively unknown. Um, and when he died of AIDS in 1994, his friend Mike and the former executive director Joseph um, got together in Houston to pack up all of his sketchbooks and correspondences. Um, but what ended up being here are about 3,000 original drawings and over a thousand original letters. Um, and not only, he didn't just keep the incoming letters that he received from muscle men, which was his fetish. He loved muscle men and he loved to be their slave. Um, but he also kept his outgoing letters as well. So it's a complete correspondence from 1991 to 1993. And he corresponded with around 50 muscle men internationally. So his, the vastness. What a fantastic snapshot of yes, the period of time absolutely. that is. Yeah. And those collections, very, very few communities can say they have those type of collections uh, let alone a community that operates as such a fringe element sometimes. Absolutely. Of, so that's fantastic. How many countries do we have stuff from, Rick? Oh, my goodness. That's a great question that I do not know the answer to. Uh, <laughs> maybe I'll many? say dozens. How about we use that as an approximation? Uh, we There are very few other archives and museums like this in the world. And so we do seek to collect, especially duplicative materials from other countries. We don't necessarily seek to bring primary source or if there's only one example of something and that is the only one of its kind in the world, we generally hesitate to bring that out of its country of origin. But there's quite a bit from North America, Canada, especially some from Mexico, uh, European countries, a little bit from the Middle East. And so 
the Middle East. Absolutely. That's an interesting place to, to bring material from. It is. And it's largely stories or anecdotes from people who have spent time there or who maybe visited and had some experiences there. Besides what many people will associate with the physical collections, we have a lot of atypical in the form of letters and journals and so forth that people have collected on their own over the years. Yes, one of the things that is really magical about the the collections of the Leather Archives is that if you are listening to this podcast and you have ever done anything kinky or you have made a post on FetLife, your history belongs at the Leather Archives. We have some huge collections from, you know, very, very famous leather and kinky people, and those are great, and you'll find those in any archives, but really the grassroots nature of the Leather Archives in that everybody's stories and everybody's histories belong here. And when we have researchers who come in to study leather culture or how kinky groups work, you know, sometimes they're interested in shore New York City or San Francisco, but a lot of times they'll say, you know what, people who live in rural rural areas, we want to know how they meet other people or how they have engaged in fetishes. And so that's one of the magical things about the collections at the Leather Archives. So there is literally from across the country, small, large collections coming in all the time. That's correct. All the time, almost every day we get a new donation, whether it be a small run pin or a collection of flyers and posters from various events to 12 boxes of someone's almost complete leather life or kinky life. Wow, that is such a fantastic snapshot of material. So we come into this building in 90... 1999. 99. Are we going to outgrow this building at some point? Uh, we are very, very soon uh, in the foreseeable future. <laughs> in the foreseeable future. Say. Yes. So we got paid for and it's time to start looking again. Uh, it is a wonderful problem when you have too much too of much something material. really, really good. And that's kind of the situation we're in. What is the boom on the material coming in? What's causing, is it, is it knowledge or is it more openness in general culture? You're obviously seeing the, the process speeding up even faster. What do you attribute that to? more and more people are becoming kinky. <laughs> if people would just stop becoming kinky and stop exploring <laughs> fetish sex, we wouldn't have this problem. But no, in all seriously, fortunately, uh, through mass media and popular culture, more and more people, I think, are being comfortable exploring their sexuality. And so we're on a very positive receiving end of that. And I think not only are people more comfortable exploring their sexuality, but they also take their sexuality more seriously. And I think that having places like the Leather Archives and having so much uh, online presence, for example, for kinky and fetish culture um, allows people to feel a little bit more proud and a little bit more empowered about having their own history um, being archived at the Leather Archives and Museum rather than being afraid um, or ashamed of holding on to that in case someone would find it that perhaps would disown you or not love you anymore. So we have collections that span decades. What's some of the older material that you all have been blessed to be able to save from a from a horrible fate? 
because some of the uh, truly old material I know gets scarce and rare and precious. So what are some of the examples of those? The further back you go, the more difficult it is to have direct evidence, right? Uh, there are a lot of stories and innuendos that talk about Benjamin Franklin and his sexuality. But finding direct evidence of it, of course, no way. Um, and so the further back you go, the harder it is to find direct evidence. So we have a lot of the evidence or a lot of the actual, okay, this is proof of leather culture, especially in the United States, begins in the 1920s with some magazines and some publications. We think about Betty Page, photographers like Irving Claw and John Willie. Um, and their publications. And so that's kind of really where the earliest evidence-based materials of the Leather Archives begin. This is a pansexual collection this, that, uh, that is uh, heterosexual, bisexual, gay, trans, the whole, the whole range of, of orientation. That is correct. Yeah, so the collection starts in the 20s with uh, magazines and pamphlets and, and journals and so forth. Every decade, it gets a little more voluminous. Absolutely. You start to see evidence, um, surely, of leather um, culture making its way into physique f photography, specifically in the 1940s and 50s. And then once the 1960s come, you start seeing um, film evidence. So you start seeing more pornography that includes kink, um, leather and BDSM. Um, once you get into the 70s, particularly in gay male leather and kink culture, you start to see an influx of documentation from the 70s, particularly with clubs and organizations. So motorcycle club history, particularly newsletters, give a lot of insight into what leather life was like for gay men at the time. Um, and so those kinds of collections can really inform how you see it through advertising, through mail order catalog, through correspondence, um, etc. Some of the listeners to the podcast might be familiar with the Eulenspiegel Society, which was started in 1971 in New York City and continues on today. Uh, they've got a really rich history. Some of that is here at the Leather Archives and Museum. Uh, literally every corner of the country and every movement has something here. What's the Holy Grail to, that you all are looking for that you haven't found yet? That's a great question. There are a lot of, I'm not going to call this the Holy Grail, but something that is really interesting to me is there are a lot of celebrities, a lot of people in pop culture, authors, uh, movie stars, that there are so many rumors about them being kinky or them being into fetish. And I'm, I just say to myself, oh, I want their stuff here at the Leather Archives. I want that to be like a connection for people who are maybe new to leather and kink to say, oh, I know them, and oh, wow, they're kinky, so it's probably okay for me to be kinky as well. Uh, so the collection has many, many directions and paths to, to, to grow in over the coming years. I, I'm looking around the room, and I'm seeing some antique equipment. You must have a very complex job of bringing some of this material in and stabilizing it. I see those are commercial 
beta tapes. Cases. Yeah. The deck over there is a commercial. So what kind of problems are we getting to? I know museums are always having the problem of stabilizing their collections. And many of these collections are deteriorating because they were not archival paper and all that. So what kind of problems is that? Um, particularly with paper, archivists and archival theory has it kind of figured out with um, tangible documentation. So paper, we know how to store it. We know to take out staples. We know to remove newsprint and photocopy it because newsprint has a lot of acidity and can ruin documents that are touching it. So we've got that covered. The newest difficulty that we're seeing in our collections are both trying to archive and preserve obsolete forms of technology so floppy disks beta tapes for example are those are things that we need to address certainly as soon as possible um, the digitization of those materials is critical to keeping them preserved and conserved for future generations and certainly digital collections are where the future is going so trying to come up with policy and procedure around receiving a computer, a flash drive, um, an external hard drive. How do we make sure that we have backups? We need to make sure we have passwords. So those are kind of um, the things that are on our minds in terms of um, new collections and also preserving the collections that we have. So a collection of eight inch floppies and for our younger listeners they'll have to google that one there was a bit of in window there anyway um uh, that is a technology that's been long since gone and but you're still here at the museum having to deal with those collections which are which are valuable when they come in in that format because that's material that's 30 years old or so you archive this and you make it available in new formats because the you can't continue to boot up a eight, eight inch floppy over and over to archive to to get at the data what is the future is this going digital to have as much of the collection as possible is that to go to digitize that's a great question i'm really happy that jacob is responding to these because these are some really difficult questions that the entire archival community is struggling with so jacob please please continue <laughs> thank you rick i think that Part of what we're focusing on, right, is it's a two-pronged issue. So the first is how to make sure any obsolete form or material or document is properly addressed and that any information that is useful to that collection on that floppy disk, on that 8-millimeter reel of film, is taken either in-house and extracted that information and reintegrate it into a collection, or we can sometimes send it out. So for eight millimeter film, for example, we don't have the technology in-house to watch and digitize that film. Eight millimeter film is tricky because at this point, once you're trying to make a preservation copy, for example, say you're trying to uh, transfer the 8-millimeter film to an archival DVD so that you can watch this film. Um, usually you can only do it one time. Wow, so you got to get it right on the first try. Before the film deteriorates. 
Um, the film wasn't meant to last for a long time. It needs to be properly stored in a container if you're going to try to keep that 8mm film. And certainly you want to try to store that as properly as you can so that you can make a preservation copy and then retain the actual film itself. There's one issue that we're dealing with currently um, in, a, in a very big way, um, certainly as we try to process our backlog, which is all the collections that have been sitting in the archives and haven't been touched um, and available to researchers. How many people are we talking about to make this operation run? This is sounding bigger and bigger and bigger at the moment. <laughs> it is. It's uh, it's certainly much, much bigger than than the two of us, Jacob and, and myself. Uh, we have three paid staff here at the Leather Archives. We have, at any given time, a couple of interns who are from local or sometimes not local uh, library or information science schools. Um, and then, at any given time, between eight and 10 volunteers who come in on a regular basis to help out or work with the collections. And, and most of this is goes towards archiving and cataloging the collections. Is that what most of this help goes towards? It's really all functions of what we do here. Our volunteers, we tap into their specific skills and expertise. So whether it's helping out bringing new donations in, whether it's making people just aware of the leather archives, cataloging, providing access, helping with photocopying, helping with scanning, really the whole gamut. We do have physical operation here. You actually have a museum and people can come and tour the museum. And what will they see if they're in the museum? The visitors to the Leather Archives, it's funny, we get like a 50-50 split between people that are kind of interested and engaged in leather and kink, and so maybe they belong to a dungeon in their hometown or they belong to a club, um, and they'll come in and they'll see their history, and it's, it's kind of neat to walk through and see things on the wall that, oh, I know that person, or hey, we know the people in this club. But then the other half of our visitors are really just kind of tourists or people who have been to the Art Institute and they've been to the Natural uh, Science Museum and the Science and Industry Museum and the Shedd Aquarium. And they're like, hey, we're ready for a different kind of a museum experience in Chicago. And the Leather Archives definitely delivers a different kind of museum experience. We also get quite a few student tours from classes, uh, gender and sexuality classes, but also uh, sometimes from LGBT student groups. And so we probably give about 15 to 20 student tours every academic year. Wow. So this is a cultural preservation process. You said unique museum experiences. Is there a more unique museum in Chicago? Oh, well, no. fine sign. <laughs> no, Jacob says. It is one of the most unique. There's some, some other off-the-wall uh, museums. There's a lot of... Chicago is like a melting pot of a lot of different ethnicities and cultural backgrounds. And so most of those cultures have their own museum presence here in Chicago. So I think Chicago is a great city for unique museum experiences. You come in the front door. Take our listeners on a short tour via radio of what they're going to see if they make the trek to the museum oh my gosh i feel like i'm like on a 1920s radio program like we need to bring in some like sound effects and yes. like have people banging on drums and stuff I like could, that i could make the butt boy music happen that's the music that you hear when you're walking through the museum is by an artist called butt boy
So you come in, then you got butt boy playing. And? So then you, well, you ring the doorbell because the door remains locked um, so that we can meet you and greet visitors at the front door. Um, we then will give you a ticket and we will encourage you to first visit the uniforms room. Uniforms room. And yes. Rick, what is the uniforms room? The uniforms room um, is, ironically enough, the uh, rabbi's study from when this was a synagogue. I'll just throw that in there. That's not really part of the tour. We do have a short little video that talks about what the leather archives is and what leather is. You know, like I said, half the people may not be exposed to this at all. So there's a little video about that. There's also some uh, leather vests and uniforms uh, on display in the uniforms room. And so that's a great first place where you might see something on the wall and say, hey, I know who that is, or I remember that club. And then our next turn is going to take us where? And then um, usually people go through the Etienne Auditorium uh, where people can view murals and original artwork by the artist Etienne. Uh, a lot of the mural work uh, that's located in the auditorium was actually in the pit, which was the uh, place based back room of the Gold Coast Bar. Um, which Chuck Renslow opened in 1958. Um, it was the first gay leather bar in the country. And I'll make a note. Uh, both of our uh, guests today are wearing Go Coast t-shirts. We're very matchy-matchy today. <laughs> Is a Go Coast uh, still in existence? Oh, no. no. And you just made me kind of sad. Oh. Unfortunately. I hear so many stories, but it is not. So you you are wearing some of the relics that you uh, aim to collect also. Well, this is a contemporary reproduction, um, but yeah, 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 I'm quite fond of this drawing. <laughs> uh, so going on, uh, so we got the artist room, and where are we going to now? Now we are going into uh, what we sometimes call the rear hallway gallery, but in this gallery, there is a piece of art which when the Illinois Family Institute, uh, hopefully the name will tell you enough about what that uh, institute is, run by uh, Peter LaBarbera. Some of your listeners will probably know that fine gentleman's name. Uh, there's a piece of art in this gallery that drove him absolutely crazy. And he posted a picture of it on his uh, website. It is sometimes referred to as the Leather Last Supper. The actual title of the piece is Judas giving Christ the finger in a leather bar. Oh, Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful piece of art uh, that was painted by a gentleman who belonged to the MCC, which, which is the Metropolitan Community Church. He painted this beautiful large mural as a way to reconcile his sexuality and his spirituality. A lot of times, kinky people will talk about their spirituality today and what that means to them, but if we think back in the 1970s and 1980s, people didn't talk a lot about how those things were connected. And so it's a beautiful piece of art that, for this gentleman, connected those two parts of his life. And for our listeners, I'll make a note. Uh, look for upcoming podcasts when we go to Las Vegas and talk to a guest on that very topic of spirituality and leather and their intersection. 
So we're moving on to from this. Is this a paint? Is this a acrylic oil, or what's the medium? It's a large oil painting. Large oil painting. So some serious time and consideration went into this great piece. Uh, so we go beyond this piece, and where are we coming to? We're going to the library. The we're library. going to the Terry Rose Library. And what will we find in the Terry Rose Library? In the Terry Rose Library, you'll find thousands of books um, and magazines. So we have a large collection of S&M comic books. We have a ton of art books and S like BDSM informational books. Um, and what's really wonderful about the Terry Rose Library is that if, if someone comes to the Leather Archives and Museum and only wants to visit or do research or read a pulp novel in the library all day, they can come in and do that for free. So we are a library in the truest sense of the word, and they can find books that I know we'll never find in this type of collection gathered in one place anywhere else in the country. Which is why you cannot check books out of the Terry Rose Library, because if we lost it, we would probably never be able to find another copy of it. So many of these are truly one-of-a-kind collector's editions and so forth. We have satisfied our reading or our comic <laughs> interest, um, and we're moving on. And where are we moving on to? We're moving into the stairwell that takes us down into the lower level of the museum. The lower level. Yes, that sounds the lower ominous. level. Oh, we're getting we're getting to the good stuff now. Uh, we walk through a banners gallery. We walk past a bondage exhibit that allows you to test your bondage IQ and see how good of a bondage expert you are, how much you know about safety. And then we continue down into one of my favorite spaces in the museum, which is the leather bar exhibit. And so we found the darkest and seediest part of the leather archives and museum. And we painted the floors to look really dingy and we set up old beer bottles and beer brands, Schlitz, stuff that you wouldn't find Stud anywhere. Cola. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you wouldn't find anywhere near a store shelf these days. Uh, and we put on display all the artifacts from some of the legendary leather bars that are no longer around, like the Gold Coast, the Mine Shaft in New York, and just really amazing um, artifacts. And I believe you have the Angels, is it, from the Mine Shaft? Yes, the Lure Angels, but they are not in the dark and uh, mysterious leather bar because they scared the crap out of everybody, including the staff. And so rather than having them in this dark and mysterious place, we put them up in the lobby under very bright lights where they are not <laughs> nearly as threatening. Nearly as threatening. So this, uh, this leather bar, this is uh, where um, much of the oral history was passed and the traditions were passed on. So... These are coming back to us now, aren't they? The leather bars are coming back from um, a decline of several years, and they're coming back. So we have some of the classics and the legendary spaces rep represent. So we've had our drink, and we're moving through, and we've just we've already passed the interactive bondage exhibit, which is uh, interactive exhibits is the way of a, any museum. And we're moving through the bar, and we've had a drink, and now where are we? We're going to the archives room. Definitely going we to the We are going. <laughs> so now we enter the archives room. 
um, where there's a special doorbell uh, letting everybody working in the archives room know that we're coming through the door. And what you will see in there are shelves and shelves and shelves full of archival boxes, uh, store all boxes of unprocessed material. It's just under 1,500 square feet of space, and it's a con climate controlled space with a HVAC system to keep the archival material as well preserved as possible. So it stays between 63 and 67 degrees 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. So this is a seriously high-tech operation. On that the is side. correct, yes. Because um, that uh, that's what you would find in any of the large facilities. And uh, so why the doorbell? What is a special doorbell? Well, if you are processing with headphones on, um, sometimes you get surprised. Um, it also is for, in, in case uh, a visitor to the museum accidentally tries to open the door to the archives, it's not open to the public. Um, but you can request um, an archives room tour when I am completely happy to give that tour. Um, so I think sometimes it will allow staff to know. So this is the white gloves and, and all of that's going on in this room. Yes. And they're pouring over some hot fisting scene, a <laughs> uh, series of Polaroids, of wax play, um, Chris Studios, original photographs, um, uh, international Mr. Leather poster, original mock-up uh, from Etienne in 1981. Um, we have an amazing fibers collection um, with fibers collection. Yes, T-shirts from vents and bars and organizations. We probably have around 50 or so fibers boxes with at least 10 T-shirts per box. Wait, you think of the t-shirts first when you think of the fibers. Um, I generally tend to think of the cum towels first when I think of the fibers. Used collection. condoms are also in some of the archival collections. I think of those as well. Um, and then really the heart and soul, I think, of the archives room, which is the leather and uniforms room, um, where there are hundreds of vests, jackets, t um, sashes, title holder sashes, um, stored and it is a very emotional space at the leather wow. archives so we have a rotating a bit of a rotating collection in throughout the museum because it sounds like your storeroom is far deeper than any display space you could ever hope to put together then yeah i estimate that at any given time less than five percent of what we have is on display wow wow and archive room so we have disturbed these diligent serious serious uh archivists in their in their uh, red face moments <laughs> and we're moving on and, and after the archive room we are coming to the oh we walk into the main gallery of the leather archives it is a huge room filled with so many exhibits and i'm gonna blow through them real quick and then maybe Jake and Jacob can come back and talk about some of them. We have a leather history timeline on display that kind of walks you back through kinky people and places throughout the years. We have a video uh, gallery where we store our film but we also have some really comfortable chairs. You can sit down for a minute and watch some old, old porn videos, some old documentaries. 
we have the Women's Leather History Project exhibit, uh, which right now is called A Room of Her Own. We have the dungeon, which is where a lot of the historic devices and whips and chains and spanking benches and chastity devices and straight jackets and slings are on display. So the Fifty Shades listeners can come to Chicago and get a taste of the movie ahead of time. Everybody's going to find something tintillating in the dungeon, I guarantee it. All right, continuing beyond the dungeon. The Fakir Musafar exhibit is currently up. I think a lot of your listeners will probably recognize that name. A couple years ago, Fakir donated a big chunk of his... uh, amazing collection to us and so we've got some videos some of his clothing some of his bondage equipment uh some of the many piercing and body modification devices he used it is not for the squeamish of heart uh, <laughs> myself included uh i can look at it for about 10 seconds and then i need to find something else to watch um, and then the- is a truly an interesting individual oh he is indeed and it was amazing to have him here to open the exhibit and oh wow collection yeah um, and then we also have uh, in the main gallery the guest artist gallery. So it's a it's a nice big space that is full of art that is not from our collection, but is from either an emerging erotic artist or um, somebody who's done work for a while. So currently we have the photography of Hromovi up in that exhibit. Uh, Hromovi does work on, she puts photograph prints on like a metallic surface. And so you get kind of this mirror image of yourself as you're looking at the photographs. Phenomenal, oh, phenomenal work. Wow, wow. Jacob, what can you add to that tour? I mean, Rick did a great job of explaining the main gallery. Um, I think that one thing that you didn't talk about was the color binders and pin binders. So we have um, an entire space with club colors, um, so patches, both back patches and smaller patches, as well as run pins in binders, and you can look through and kind of see all the clubs colors displayed and find your favorite club or um, look for the wild onion 81 run pin and um, I, I love that space as well currently the women's leather history project exhibit is getting some updates um, from uh, an intern that's here from the university of kansas um, that's working with me downstairs which is really exciting so Kiki Cash was at Southeast Leather Fest just a few weeks ago, and that history was being recorded on site for addition here. So we're exiting the main gallery. The last part of the tour uh, is the bathrooms. And you know what? That's all I'm going to say about that. Oh. <laughs> um, I will leave it to our listeners that are a bit younger to google politicians and bathrooms and they may get an ideal oh you didn't go there i went there <laughs> great um so how many visitors do we get in the course of a year uh we usually get between like three and four thousand people that come through the door every year uh both uh researchers who are coming in to use the archives patrons coming in to see the museum, as well as people coming in to attend events in our 164-seat auditorium. 
And I've noticed in the website we have quite a few events going on over the time. And uh, some that you got coming up in the next month or so. Tonight, this will be really applicable to your listeners who are listening to this podcast in the future. Uh, tonight, <laughs> we have one of our interns is doing a program called Cruising the Archive, talking about archives, uh, social media, uh, kinky hookup sites, digital cruising, and social like hookup apps like Growler and Scruff. Uh, but in September, we're doing uh, a panel discussion about uh, privacy and how people choose to use legal names or their uh, how they allow themselves to be photographed or not. Um, and then in October, we're hosting a stop of the Cinekink National Tour. So on October 4th, we'll be hosting Cinekink Chicago Kinky Film Festival. Wow. So uh, if you're coming to Chicago, be sure to put the uh, visit to the uh, Leather Archives and Museum on your itinerary now we have the women's history project we hit that that's an ongoing project and can you tell me a little bit more about that so some of our listeners can maybe jump on board with this sure the women's leather history project is is a fairly large project that includes both an in-house exhibit a traveling exhibit, and then an oral history project where at various events, like you were saying when you were at Self, um, they were recording oral histories of women in leather um, just to make sure that our collections are full of varying stories and various experiences of people in leather, and specifically women in leather for this project. So we're closing the gender gap. The uh, women have been less represented, I know, throughout the history uh, with um, their activities have been less well, well documented. And but now we're closing that gap and bringing in some of that history specifically. Great. And what else is going on? I want to talk for just a second about how the museum is funded. Um, a, because I think your listeners, you know, we're talking about all these amazing things that happen here. So your listeners uh, might be wondering about that. And I can also literally hear the treasurer on my board of directors um, saying, Rick, talk about how the funding works. Rick, talk about how the funding works. So if I may talk about how the funding works. Please for just a do. Yes. Great. Thank you. I wish I could tell you that they're the National Endowment for Humanities <laughs> and the National Endowments for the Arts both wrote us a nice big check every year and we everything was taken care of. Or I wish I could tell you that many of the many, many foundations, private foundations that typically fund libraries and archives and museums wrote us letters every year with, with checks enclosed. And I wish I could tell you that uh, large corporations that love to attach their name to uh, cultural projects um, were just beating down our door saying, please put our logo in the Leather Archives and, for and Museum. And unfortunately, I can tell you none of those things. There are um, a few small foundations that do provide the Leather Archives um, with about 5% of our annual operating budget. We're fortunate to have the uh, large and wonderful International Mr. Leather Weekend, one of the largest leather and kink event 
gatherings in the country, uh, supports the leather archives. And so about 25% of our funding comes from that. And the other, uh, let's see if my math is right, the other 70% um, comes from people who care about their history and leather and kinky people who think that it's important for there to be a place that is owned and controlled by the community. And so that's where the rest of our funding comes. And sometimes that means um, going to a fundraiser. You talked about Southeast Leather Fest a couple weeks back. Uh, the Leather Archives was a beneficiary at that event. So we always encourage people to get involved with those kind of fundraisers. Um, the largest chunk of our, of our funding comes from membership. And so people who say, you know what, once a year, uh, I'm going to write a check. Our membership start at $50 because I support the Leather Archives and I want to make sure that there's a place where I know my history is going to be safe and available. Give people the website. Sure. The website is leatherarchives.org and I'm happy for you to visit the website. I'm also even happier for you to check out some of our social media presence. Um, our social media manager really is kind of pushing some new frontiers in how museum collections are made available through social media. And so whether you follow us on Facebook or on um, Pinterest or on Tumblr or on Twitter, uh, we put so much of our collection out on those formats. On FetLife, to some extent, um, FetLife is a little bit challenging for sharing photography and video-based materials, um, but we, we put some of the stuff on there as well. And for our listeners, please go to our links page, and you'll have links to many of these uh, venues on that uh, site. And our listeners, also get your checkbooks out and write that check. Or can they go to the website and do a credit card? Of course. If there is a way for you to give money to the Leather Archives, we have probably made it doable for you because listeners this is an incredible operation if you're in chicago you got to visit it and if you're not uh, if you have something unique or special please make arrangements to at some point get it to these uh wonderful gentlemen and because we definitely need to protect our history and our culture what else can we say gentlemen well i hope that all of your listeners have two things they have a box somewhere in their house that says for the leather archives on it and anytime they come across something in paper or physical format that they think hey this should go to the leather archives sometime um, they probably already have 50 copies of it but you know what just in case they don't i'm going to throw this thing into this box and i'm going to make sure that at least somebody knows that when i'm no longer around that this box goes to the leather archives and i hope that they also have a folder on their computer when they come across something that they see a web link or uh, something someone posted on FetLife that was just really amazing and should be saved, find a way to get that into a medium that can be saved on your computer um, for coming to the Leather Archives at some point in the future. And all of our listeners, I will recommend that you have a designated kinky person that grabs your computer if something should ever happen and make sure that computer gets to the right people With because uh, uh, I know mine's a treasure trove of of links and data and so forth. So, and I'm, and I'm the designated person for a couple people, to, you know, to get there before the mother gets there and... <laughs> 
and save it uh, like you all were talking early on many of these collections uh got lost over the years by uh families that were just a little shocked at what they found anything else to add gentlemen uh, the only other thing i want to mention is that Every month right now, we have partnered up with um, Leatherati.com to present a series called From the L.A.N.M. Archives, where we uh, highlight either a collection that we're working on or a donation that's come in, um, and we talk about its relevance, and um, there are some photos, and I do a little write-up about it. So it comes out the first Friday of every month. You have been listening to The Kinky Cast. For more information about this show, go to kinkycast.com. Views expressed are not representative of the management of the Kinky Cast, and we welcome guests with opposing viewpoints. The Kinky Cast is a production of Rooster in the Round. On behalf of all our Kinky crew, I'm Max.